I just want to read a couple of verses in the little book of Jude, which is just that little one chapter book before uh, the book of Revelation. <coughs> Excuse me. So the epistle of Jude. And reading from verse 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered for all, sorry, which was once for all delivered to the saints. I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. In a court of law, a man must present his case. Uh, you have to produce a, a body of evidence. You must present it to the court, uh, give the facts, try your best to prove your point to the satisfaction uh, of the jury. And so you must speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. What about Christianity? Can we present a case? Can we present a body of evidence uh, for the veracity, the truth of Christianity? And if we can, what would it be? Now, it may not necessarily say this is the evidence that God exists, but at least it's an evidence that would point in that direction. For any right-thinking, reasonable-thinking person who would be open-minded. There's people with closed minds, no matter what you show them or tell them, they're never going to believe. But there's other people who are open. And if you present proper evidence, at least it may make them think. And it may point them in the direction that you want them to go. And that is that Christianity is absolutely true. So what are the evidences of this? What are the reasons to believe? First of all, let's think for a moment or two about the credibility of its founder. Every religion, every faith in the world has a founder. Jesus Christ is the founder of Christianity. Why was he different than all the others? What was unique about the Lord Jesus. Why is it that Christianity is still the fastest growing and the largest religious movement in history? Why is that? John Blanchard, a speaker and author, has written a little article here. I want to read this very quickly to you uh, just about Christ. His exact date of birth is not known. Now, it's coming up to Christmas in a few weeks, and we will celebrate his birth on the 25th of December, but all of us know, I'm sure by now, or we should, that that is not the actual date as far as we know. It probably most definitely isn't. <laughs> probably most definitely. That doesn't sound too good. It most definitely isn't. But it's as good a day as any to celebrate his birth, and so we do that. 
Although his exact date of birth is not known, yet human history is divided into years before he was born and those since he was born. He never wrote a book, yet more books have been written about him than any other person. And the demand for more seems insatiable. He never painted a picture, composed any poetry, wrote any music, yet nobody has inspired more paintings, poetry, plays, songs, films, videos, or other art forms. One film based entirely on his recorded words has been produced in almost 500 languages and has already been seen by more people than any other in history. That's the Jesus film, by the way. And it has been seen by more people than any other film in the history of, of films. He never raised an army or led an armed rebellion, yet millions of people have laid down their lives in his cause, and thousands still do so every year. Except for one brief period during his childhood, his travels were limited to an area the size of Wales. But today his influence is literally worldwide and his followers form the largest religious grouping the world has ever known. His public teaching lasted only three years and was restricted to a few parts of one of the world's tiniest countries. Yet today purpose-built satellites and some of the world's largest radio and television networks beam his teaching around our planet. He set foot in just two countries, yet today an organization committed to his cause flies regularly to more countries than any of the world's commercial airlines. That's uh, MAF, Ministry Aviation Fellowship. He, has no formal, he had no formal education, but thousands of universities and seminaries and colleges and schools have been founded in his name. During his lifetime, he was virtually unknown outside his own country. Yet in the current edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, the entry under his name runs to some 30,000 words, which is much more than any other religious leader in history. It is now reckoned that there has been some 60 billion people who has lived upon the face of the earth since time began. And out of that 60 billion how many has had an impact in this world? Very few indeed. And yet Jesus Christ has had the greatest impact of any other human being in the history of mankind. And so H.G. Wells, who <laughs> certainly was no believer, uh, he was very skeptical, but even he admitted, and I quote, that Jesus was easily the dominant figure in history and that nobody could write a history of the human race without giving Jesus the first and the foremost place. And so we have a founder that is absolutely incredible. His popularity, the love that men and women have for him over all of those years. You may remember that C.S. Lewis, the great writer, said that Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, a legend, or he was indeed the Lord. We certainly have no evidence at all that he was a liar. In fact, even his worst enemies couldn't accuse him of lying. <clears throat> certainly wasn't a lunatic. Uh, no historian ever even hinted that there was something mentally unhinged about Jesus Christ of Nazareth. 
And he certainly was not a legend. Again, historians uh, have written about him as a fact that he was a figure in history. Because there are those who say that there is no evidence that he was a figure in history. Well, they need to read their history books to find that out, of course. Uh, Flavius Josephus, one of the great Jewish historians, writes about him. And so, if he wasn't a liar and he wasn't a lunatic and he wasn't a legend, then Lewis says that he must be the Lord. And he is the Lord. His claims were tremendous. I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. I am the light of life. What tremendous claims Jesus made and backed them up. He walked on water. He raised the dead. He cured the incurable. He multiplied bread. He turned water into wine. He calmed stormy seas. Even though his birth was quite normal, Mary gave birth to Jesus in a quite normal fashion. But his conception was anything but normal. It was supernatural. It was extraordinary. There are those, of course, who say that it is scientifically impossible for a virgin to conceive. That it just doesn't add up scientifically. But then there are others who say, well, there is a one in a billion chance that it could happen. And they quote a process. Parenthogenesis. Parenthogenesis is whenever the female egg separates and divides, should I say, without being fertilized. And in some lower mammals, this happens. Not very often. It's very, very rare. But it does happen. But when it happens, the offspring doesn't survive. But it couldn't happen in Mary's case. Even if it was a billion to one chance, it just couldn't happen because the human genetic code is very, very different. We know that a male has X and Y chromosomes and a female has X plus X chromosomes. Therefore, if there was no male chromosomes, then the offspring of Mary would have been a girl. But if it only acts, so something supernatural had to happen, and we know we know Mary was concerned about this when the angel came and said, and she said, "How can this be, seeing I know not a man?" Remember what he said: "The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and that which is born of you shall be the Son of God." It was a supernatural birth. Jesus accepted worship. Accepted worship. Men should not accept worship. Only God can be worshipped. But Jesus accepted worship. Angels will not accept worship. But Jesus accepted worship. In Acts 14 at Lystra. In fact, just have a little quick look at that just for a second. 
wonderful healing in verse 8. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped up and walked. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to serve the living God who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. So we see there that they uh, would not accept any worship whatsoever. But Jesus surely did accept worship. Whenever they cried, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. <laughs> And there was those who wanted to hush the children as they shouted. And he says, if they don't praise me, the very stones will cry out. And so he was accepted praise. He claimed that he was pre-existent. In John chapter 8, he makes this claim. Have a look at that. In verse 56, this is his argument with the Pharisees. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Notice he didn't say I was. He says, I am, and he was quoting from uh, Exodus 3, remember when Moses uh, met with God in that wonderful experience and God commissioned him to go back to his people to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. Who will I say sent me? Say, I am has sent you. The great name of God. And so not only was he calling himself God here, not only was he making that uh, statement, but he was saying before Abraham was, I am claimed he was pre-existent. In John 10.30, he claimed that he and the Father were one. You don't need to turn to that. In John 17, he claimed equal glory with the Father. And in John 18, again, he uses that term, I am. You remember whenever the soldiers came in the Gethsemane in the garden to arrest him, and he says, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. And when he said, I am, remember what happened? The power of God came forth and all of those soldiers, they fell backwards. <laughs> Such was the power of his words. And so we have the credibility of its founder. And then we have the reliability of its word. As Christians, we believe that this book is the Word of God. This is God's Word to us. 
Of course, all of the great religions of the world have their own sacred writings. All of them. But how do we know they're true? How valid are they? What good have they done? What have their teachers produced? How accurate are they in their transmission? In other words, when they were carried down through the generations, how accurate have they been? What are they like when it comes to geography, to history, to archaeology? What are they like when it comes to all those things? Because actually when you read something like the Book of Mormon, you'll find that <laughs> there's a lot of myths, a lot of misinformation, and things that are just not true. It doesn't add up either geographically or archaeologically, archaeology or anything. The wonderful thing about Christianity is that archaeologists are always digging, digging, digging. They're always turning up something that's proving something that's in the Bible that man denied for centuries. And suddenly they find something that's on a tablet or a stone. They have to hold their hands up and say, no, actually that was true. You see, the Bible has got to be true in every facet. Now we know that today, and we had our dear brother here just a few weeks ago, uh, John Mackay, uh, we know that today, uh, the great debate within about creation and evolution, all of that, uh, and one of the ways the evolutionist and the atheist is attacking the Bible is to try to uh, deny the truth of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And all the great things about the early history of man, right from Adam. And the trouble is, then, if we deny that, and there's branches of the church who are denying it. There's people today who say that Adam, it was, there was no Adam. It's just a metaphorical term, but he didn't really exist as a human being. Now, if we start to deny all of those things, then what part are we going to believe? That's the problem. And that's why creationists are fighting so hard to try to show the, the truth of the first 11 chapters of Genesis because that's what's being attacked. And if we don't believe that, then what are we going to believe from then on? What are we going to believe at Jesus? What are we going to believe at the Bible, the rest of it? Are we going to just pick and choose? And so there's a great debate and a great fight going on. What about science? You see, the Bible has got to be true geographically, it's got to be true historically, it's got to be true archaeologically, and it's got to be true scientifically. Because if it isn't, then what part is right and what part's wrong? What are we going to trust? Now, of course, we know that the Bible is not a, a science book. We know it's a spiritual book, it's a moral book, it's an ethical book, but it's not a science book. But yet it does make scientific statements. Not, not in the normal way that a scientist would say, but it does. John MacArthur says, suppose you were enjoying your Christmas dinner and someone said to you, would you like some more? In scientific language you might reply, gastronomical satiety admonishes me that I have arrived at a state of decletition consistent with my dietetic integrity. In other words, no thanks, I've had enough. And so the Bible, although it, doesn't, although it contains science, it's not written in scientific terms. 
But there's scientific statements there nonetheless. Can I give you just a few? Up until the 17th century, man was absolutely baffled by how rain and rivers could make a continual flow to water the earth. They knew it was happening, they just didn't know how. And then they discovered in the 17th century it was really a process of three things. Evaporation, transportation, and distillation, or precipitation. The sun sucks up water from the seas. Evaporation. The winds drive, it forms clouds. The wind drives those clouds, that's transportation. It comes to highlands or mountains. Then it, those clouds burst and you get distillation or you get precipitation, rain. And the rain in the mountains forms little streams. Then the streams go into rivers. Sometimes, of course, in really, really high mountains, it turns to snow and ice and it stays there to the summer till the sun melts it. But eventually, it all comes down the mountain, into the rivers, and then the rivers flow into the sea, and then that process starts all over again. That's hydrology. It took until the 17th century to find that out. Yet, <laughs> if you look at the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes in chapter 1, verse 7, all the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. <laughs> and he wasn't a scientist. But he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you see. In Job chapter 36, Job chapter 36 Verse 26. Sorry. Let me get Job 26. Job 36, didn't I say? Why am I looking for 26? I'm looking for verse 26 of Job 36. Behold, God is great, and we do not know him. Or who can number of... Or who can the number of his years be discovered? Nor can the number of his years be discovered. Listen to this. For he draws up drops of water which distill as rain from the mist, which the clouds drop down and pour abundantly on man. Indeed, can anyone understand the spreading of clouds? And so all of those years ago, we find that the Bible has something to say about hydrology. What about meteorology? Again in the 17th century, Galileo was the one who discovered that the wind currents of the world, they follow well-defined circuits. Now anybody who's ever flown transatlantic on the jets will know there's such a thing as the jet stream. And if you get into the jet stream and you're going with it, you will arrive earlier. And if it's against you, you will arrive later. And the jets try to get into the jet stream because it makes it easier if they can get into that jet stream. 
just to flow along with it. Galilee discovered this in the 17th century. But 2,600 years ago, Solomon is writing again. And Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 7. No, that's, no, that's not it. Let me just find this again. I beg your pardon. <coughs> Psalm 100. Ecclesiastes 1. Have that many verses. Ecclesiastes 1 and 6. I have three or four verses I need to give you. Ecclesiastes 1 and 6. Here's what he writes. The wind goes towards the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. Now how did he know that? Let me read it again. The wind goes towards the south, turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. So he somehow understood that the wind had a, a circuit that it had to follow. Now, Lord Kelvin, who by the way was born in Belfast, brilliant scientist, tremendous man, spent a lot of years living in Scotland. He made an amazing discovery, and his amazing discovery was this. He said that rain will never fall unless there is first an electrical discharge of some degree. Now that was an astounding discovery that he made. Listen to what the psalmist said in Psalm 135. Psalm 135. Thousands of years before Lord Kelvin. Psalm 135 and verse 7. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. Note this. He makes lightning for the rain. And he brings the wind out of his treasuries. He caused the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. Now, isn't that amazing? Thousands and thousands of years ago that that was in the Bible. I wonder did Lord Kelvin read that. I don't know. I wonder was he reading that that made him think. I have no idea whether that was the case or not. But it would be lovely to think that, wouldn't it? And Job 38 Verse 25, Or who has divided a channel for the overflowing water or a path for the thunderbolt to cause it to rain on a land where there is no one? Who has divided a channel for the overflowing water or a path for the thunderbolt to cause it to rain on a land where there is no one? So all of those years ago, there are scientific statements that are actually in the scriptures. And it took centuries, millenniums sometimes, before science actually caught up with the Bible. Here's another one. Galileo, again in the 17th century. 
he discovered that wind had weight. That wind had weight. In other words, the air had weight. In Job chapter 28... Let's read verse 24. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees under the whole heavens to establish a weight for the wind and apportion the waters by measure. To establish a weight for the wind. And so all of those years hidden within Scripture were these statements that took scientists years and years in order to discover. For thousands of years, astronomers thought that they could count the stars. The 17th century, Hippratus said that there are, this was before telescopes, that there are 1,022 stars. He was quite precise about that. Ptolemy reckoned them to be 1,056. Then Kelper came along and he said that there was exactly 1,055. All much the same. <laughs> then Galileo and others came along with a telescope. And once they had a telescope, they were absolutely astounded how many stars they could see with the telescope. I'll put you to the test. If anybody's got a pair of binoculars, they don't have to be great binoculars, just any pair of binoculars. Go out on a lovely starry night and look up with your, just your naked eyes, with no optical help, just look up and look at the stars. And then look at the same stars through binoculars. And I guarantee you'll be amazed at how many more you see just with a set of binoculars, just an ordinary pair of binoculars. Had they known <laughs> that hundreds of years later that the Hubble Space Telescope would go up beyond Earth's dirty atmosphere and have a clear vision of the heavens, then they would be amazed at the billions of stars that they discovered. And not only billions of stars, but billions of galaxies full of billions of stars. Incalculable, cannot be counted, impossible to count. Jeremiah 33, 22 says, The host of heaven cannot be numbered. <laughs> that would have saved them a whole lot of work, wouldn't it? The host of heaven cannot be numbered. We are staggered. Now they've got massive land-based telescopes that peer into the heavens, and we are staggered at not only the stars, but how many galaxies that are as numerous as the stars that you can see. You can go online, you can see it for yourself. Jeremiah, who certainly was no astronomer, says the host of heaven cannot be numbered. Here's something else quickly about stars. Astronomers have discovered that every star is different, that it has its own peculiar signature. Now, I'm a, I have difficulty with colors. You know that in here. It comes regularly. That's an open secret, isn't it? But even I, who have difficulty with colors, if I go out and look at the night sky, I can see there are some differences. Don't ask me what they are, but I can see there are some differences. And the difference is this. It's to do with the heat. So they range from white, white hot, 
to blue, to yellow, and to red. And that's to do with the heat. Look at your fire. Have you got a living fire? Some of the coals will be white hot. Some will be a little bit cooler, they'll be blue. Some will be a lot cooler, they'll be yellow. Some will be dying embers and they'll be red. It's the same with the stars. So astronomers put these in sequence according to coolness, according to size. Some of them are giant, massive. Usually the ones that are dying, they blow up and they're massive, massive big things. But each of them have their own signature. Now, the Apostle Paul writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 which is the great resurrection chapter. He has something to say about this also. First Corinthians chapter 15. Well, let's read verse 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up? With what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. What you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same. There's one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, the glory of the terrestrial is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. Now, even if they're just referring to the brightness of the stars, he would have no idea because of the technology we have today just how bright those stars can be. But he did know enough to know that one star differs from another. Do you know that each star has its own song, its own music, its own signal, its own radio signal. If we could hear the stars, if we could hear them with our ears, it would be like a great cosmic orchestra playing continually, continually. Do you know that whenever that tsunami hit Japan, do you know that the earth rang? that scientists said the earth actually rang. It was so shaken. And out there in the vast cosmos, there are billions of stars, and all of them, if we could hear them, all have their each their own unique signature. And science is discovering this, and they're listening. And it's amazing. <coughs> in Job 38, 7, God asked Job, among many things he's asking him, he says, where were you when the morning stars sang together? Where were you when the morning stars sang together? Could that be a reference to the stars having their own song? Maybe they're glorifying their creator. Hmm? And so it goes on. There used to be a time whenever people thought the earth was flat. There used to be a time Hindus believed that it was held up by elephants. Giant elephants, literally. But you know what Job says? In Job 26, 7, he says, He hangs the earth upon nothing. 
How did he know that? How did he know that? He hangs the earth upon nothing. How could somebody who has never, whose feet has never left this planet, how could he know that the earth is hung upon nothing? Anybody who goes out of, <laughs> in a spaceship can look at the earth hanging upon nothing. But how did he know? Because he's writing. The book is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He hangs the earth upon nothing. The Bible talks about the circle of the earth. How did man know that away thousands of years ago? When he never could see the curvature of the earth. Did you see that guy who jumped out of that big balloon for 24 miles up? I mean, what amazing courage that guy had to do that. Hmm? I mean, you've got to hand it to him. All right, it's maybe a nutcase, but you've got to hand it to him. I heard him being interviewed the other night. and It's not a program I'd ever watch that guy because he can't stand it. But anyway, I saw him coming off. I'll watch him. And uh, he jokingly said, uh, were you a bit worried about hitting your landing place? He said, I was worried about hitting the planet. <laughs> He's looking down at the planet and you can see the whole curvature of the earth. But how did Isaiah know about the circle of the earth? How did he know that? written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you see. What about biology? Use medical people in here. 1628, William Harvey. What did he discover? Come on, nurses, doctors. <laughs> the circulatory system of the body, the blood system, travels around the body. He discovered that. You're not going to correct me after this, sure you're not? Because you're not too sure, sure you're not. You left those old books back about 20 years ago, didn't you? I didn't know this either until I read it, so that's all right. Now, what he discovered was, when he discovered the circulatory system of the body, and with the blood vessels and the veins and so forth, he discovered how important the blood is to the body. Had he read Leviticus 17.11, he discovered that a long time ago where it says the life of the flesh is in the blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Now here's an amazing thing. We're going to close in a second. Here's an amazing thing. If you stand and look in a mirror at yourself, at your human body, you're looking at 10,000 trillion cells, human cells, that's what you're looking at, that forms your body. And every one of those 10,000 trillion human cells, there is a nucleus. And every nucleus, there are chromosomes. And 99.999% of the time, there's an equal complement of 46 chromosomes. 23 Male, 23, female. In your chromosomes, there is a wonder chemical. It's called the most extraordinary molecule on earth, DNA. A strand of DNA, if you unraveled it, is about two meters in length. 
And in that strand, two meters in length of DNA, there's over three billion letters of coding that dictates and determines everything about your human body. The color of your eyes, the color of your hair, the size of your feet, the size of your ears, pigmentation of your skin, every single detail is there in one strand. And there are 20 million kilometers of DNA all wrapped up in your body. And if God didn't design that, who did? Are you going to tell me tonight that that just happened? What would be the chances of that just accidentally coming together? Impossible. You can't even think of odds for that. No wonder the Bible says, Psalmist said in Psalm 139, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Fearfully and wonderfully made. And every single one of those cells needs oxygen to exist. That's where your heart comes in. That wee pump in your chest that pumps 8,000 liters a day of blood through your system. In a year, that's enough blood to fill four Olympic-sized swimming pools. And that's just when you're resting. If you're exercising, it jumps six times that. All just to keep us alive. Could that just have happened? Is that just a fortunate accident? I don't think so. See how foolish atheism is in the light of all this? And so God made us fearfully and wonderfully. Some of you people have got mobile phones in your pocket or your purse and it's got a camera in it and it's got 8 million pixels. Pixel is short for picture element. You might 8 million say little tiny squares that light can hit on to form a picture. That gives you a pretty short picture, doesn't it? Tony, your camera, how many pixels has your best camera got? 16. Twice your phone. 16. That's even sharper. I mean, you can blow that away up massively and it'll still be sharp. Your eyes, the equivalent, well, they're not called pixels, they're called rods and cones, but your eyes has got 136 million. <laughs> and it's exactly precise. Some for black and white, some for color. I don't know what happened. Mine, mine got to be a bit mixed up here and there. <laughs> but isn't it amazing? Final thing, of all the world's religions, the Bible is the only prophetic book. It's got the only prophetic book. The books of Buddhism, of Hindu, the Quran, Book of Mormon, no prophecy. None. But the Bible is 30% prophetic. 30%. 
There are over 300 prophecies about Christ's first advent to this earth. And every single one of them, what are the odds? Every single one of them was fulfilled exactly to the T as the Bible said it would be. And geography and archaeology and all of that has proven that to be the case. And it's 30% prophetic. And I always like to say, if those 300 came true about Christ's first advent, don't you think the 700 plus about his second advent will come true? Absolutely it will come. And so many of them has already been fulfilled. There's very few left to be fulfilled. And so Christianity is true. You can count on it. You can believe in it. You can depend upon it. Because Christ is its founder. And this book that we call God's Word is so absolutely true and it's packed with truth. And no matter who tests it, scientifically, geographically, archaeology, whatever way you want to test it, it'll be found to be true. This is why the devil hates this book. This is why it's been attacked every single day. Because if he can get us to stop believing in this book, then it's all over. Because this is what God left us to believe and to trust and depend upon and count on and read and live it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the amazing creator of life. Lord, there's times where minds boggles. We can hardly comprehend the amazing complexity of life that you created. And yet, Lord, it works perfectly well. And so we thank you for it. We thank you for the strength that we receive from your word. We trust every word of it. We believe every word of it. It's infallible. It's inerrant. It is absolutely true. And Lord, we depend our very lives upon it. So we give you thanks, Lord. And we bless you tonight. So Lord, as we leave here this evening, as we go into our workplace tomorrow, help us, Lord, to trust the truths of your word, to believe that this Christian faith that we have is the true faith because it's founded upon Jesus Christ. So we bless you for this. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.